strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. Rock on. We're here. So hi, Varun. What's up? Long time no chat. Hey, yeah, it's Friday. <laughs> Looking forward for the weekend. It's warm, I know. It's sunny. You know? I don't know when this is getting published, but all right. Our guest today. Are you ready? This is a pretty epic intro. Are you ready for this? Hit me. He's, well, you know it because you're the guest. So he's created more than 100 mobile apps, custom built-in web applications, and intuitive user experience for clients like Field Museum, Roger Ebert, AccuWeather, and Tyson Foods. He's been quoted in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Fast Company, and has had a global presentations of the day on Oh, I should have practiced. I don't know how to say <laughs> Pachaka cha. It means chicha in Japanese. Thank you. Um, that one caught me. You're the author of the sticky note game, which I can't wait to talk about here in a few minutes. The creator of the inclusion meeting card, Forbes Chicago Business Council Chair. Right, we're not done yet. Named top 15 healthcare software companies by Mobile App Daily. You're co-founder of Walkshop, which we're all excited to talk about. Mm-hmm. The CEO of at table xi mark rickmeyer welcome to the much. show thanks for having me also former resident of melbourne australia which is near and dear to my heart <laughs> very true oh man i miss the aussies wouldn't that be nice right about now to go somewhere where it's summer and it's still winter here uh pretty much yeah i would yeah. take it <laughs> you gotta work that out and a little nando's chicken <laughs> <laughs> goes really far actually yeah that'd go really over really well right now i would take a nando's chicken right now for varun i don't know if you've been to australia but nando's chicken is something that it's i don't even it's like the most delicious chicken restaurant you can buy their like spices and shake mixes online but it's not the same as having it in person I think my favorite was when we went to uh to go see like one of the footy games being played mm-hmm. and we got a meat pie and i was really curious like what is going to be in my very first australian meat pie and sure enough, the ingredients were just like flour, comma, meat. Like, not what kind of meat? I was like, yep, this sounds healthy. Uh, <laughs> well, the uh, question was, is, did you put ketchup on it? Oh, of course. Yeah, we have to, you know, we actually puncture it and squirt the ketchup right mm-hmm. into the meat pie and just eat it like a big hungover mess. It's wonderful. So good. So good. I, you know, we've talked a lot about this in our prep call. I mean, one of my favorite things that we don't do often enough over here is waffles with ice cream on top. You know, I, I lived in the Little Italy area and you can get a big fat Belgian waffle with a big scoop of gelato right on top. I, the only place I've ever seen it offered regularly throughout the entire country is Australia. So <laughs> there was something. So I come from Chicago where like portion control is not a thing. You know, like mm-hmm. we don't have hurricanes. We don't have uh, tornadoes. We don't have earthquakes. We just have like lots of rampant obesity. And so like when I went to Australia, I was like, oh, these are my people. Because they're like, yeah, let's put ice cream on waffles. That's a normal thing to do. Uh, so I felt very much at home uh, down under. It was, it was a good experience. All right, we're not here to talk about Australia. Let's let's start off with um, our new favorite question. It's a, a myth that you'd like to smash. So some sort of bogus strategy, misconception that you want to set straight. What I know we we were talking about it earlier. You had an idea, and I stopped you. I said, "Wait until we start recording." So now is the time, my friend. Share. What do you, what do you want to clear things up for the folks listening? Uh, so this was an idea that I got watching a great interview with Warren Buffett. Um, 
who was trying to talk about all the things he's done in his career, um, as opposed to Bill Gates and what he did in his career. The two are just talking back and forth, like wildly successful people. And I think the person who was interviewing was like, show me your planner. Uh, what, what does a week look like? And Bill Gates is like, oh, I've got my fingers in all these different things. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing you know this, and I've got all these different meetings. And you could, and, and Warren Buffett's like shaking his head and they show Warren Buffett's calendar. It had like two things. It was like a thing on Tuesday and a thing on Thursday. And the rest, he was just taking time to think and to, and to read and to learn and to strategize. Uh, and he was like, you were doing it wrong. Like there is this myth, there's a perception that being busy, especially as an agency owner, like being busy is valuable, that you're gonna get involved in sales and marketing and recruiting, you're gonna do all these things, uh, which means you're bouncing from meeting from meeting, invoice to invoice, you know, email to email. Uh, and uh, that's the, I think that's the thing that people need to break that habit. Um, busy, as Warren Buffett said, busy is the new stupid. Like if you're that, sandwiched between meetings and you're constantly booking up your calendar and you never protect time as the owner to really think or to read, to learn, to invest and think about where you want to go, that heads down time is really useful. But we associate value with things, meetings, emails, getting things done. And so it is a slippery slope to get all your, your whole calendar just jam-packed, especially when we're all trapped at Zoom and can't go anywhere anyway. You're, you know, even your commute time is now taken up with meetings and calls and, um, so I've actually, I've taken to creating blocks in my calendar that literally says busy is the new stupid. So like my team knows, like, please do not bug me. Like I will not take this call. I want to have time just to think. Uh, and there's so much value in being able to think about where you're going and how you can be doing things differently to reflect. Uh, but, you know, we rarely protect that time. It seems like a superfluous or been like not, not having a positive ROI thing. But like one of the most wildly successful people in the world literally only had two meetings all week. The rest of it, he's like, I have people that can do that work. I need to think. Um, and so that's the myth, I think. If, if more of us actually protected that time, not only just for wellness and just for your own like mental health to have that dedicated time. Um, but uh, so I've been trying to do more of that and actually doing that while walking and getting the hell away from Zoom, getting off my chair and spending some time actually walking in Chicago's freezing weather. But uh, I think that's the thing I'm trying to get really protect is that the mantra, and I've been thinking about this for a couple of years, it's, it's still a struggle, but that idea of busy is the new stupid uh, and just recognizing that value is not associated with uh, production. Like you can take time to think that's just as much as producing an email or sending an, you know, an invoice or something. It's funny uh, you said that because uh, earlier today, I was listening to this podcast on the power of stillness. You know, in, in this busy world, you know, how important it has even become more than ever to just pause, to 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 you know, to just stop whatever you are doing, not, not only in your daily routine, but also, um, you know, it, it focus on the stuff that you are doing now and stop doing multitasking, stop doing, engaging into multiple things that you are doing at that moment. Just, just take a pause and, 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 you know, uh, re-energize yourself. Um, so I, I totally agree on how important that is. I hope people are learning that. Like if there's an element of mindfulness and wellness that's becoming more mainstream. People are learning about the benefits of these things, um, but we do, we do it to ourselves. I mean, think about how many times you're, you're trying to get eight things done at once. You've got Slack, multiple Chrome tabs open and a cell phone with notifications going off. Like we are wiring our brains to context switch and to be multi-threaded. And yeah. it's tough because agency owners, people listening to this, I guarantee have their hands in a lot of different areas. Like you are involved, especially as a small agency, you're involved in everything. You, you are, you don't, you can't delegate everything to everybody. So you, you're involved in sales, marketing, 
your highest, your, your biggest clients or recruiting. Like you, that's the point of a small business. You have to wear many hats. But if you don't protect that time for yourself, God, you're going to run yourself into the ground uh, and your business along with it. So that I think sometimes people look at their calendar like, look how busy I am. I'm like, shame on you. That's a terrible thing to brag about. I think that's a thing to really kind of be aware of. It's an interesting, it's an interesting struggle though, too, because it's, it's, you know, moment you let something go, you have to trust that someone else is going to do it. I mean, it was funny right before we hopped on today, I was chatting with Varun. I've been struggling to figure out something for a client and, um, you know, we have some interns doing some work for us. And I was like, it's just, I could tell he was struggling because his work wasn't good enough, you know, and it's trying to find the time to be able to teach and mentor and train and say, okay, here's where my expectations are. But I also need you to do this to get it off my plate. So we don't have to do it. And it's just, it's, you're at like the struggle is totally real, but finding those times to be able to sit and like even chunk out research on how to solve a particular problem or you know and not having 850 meetings a day and I know a lot of agency owners you know they only do meetings in the morning and they're only 15 minutes or something like that or um, I, there's a, a few people I work with like like I don't take client meetings on Mondays is a good example very very rarely because Mondays like set things up for the week day um, in terms of managing the schedule but that's a uh, yeah. I'm going to try and be as practical as I can, giving advice and guidance of the things I've been learning. So yeah. first, first thing I would say, check out a tool called Clockwise. Uh, you can set up your calendar and tell Clockwise, I want to have at least two times a week heads down time where I can't be interrupted. Or I want to make sure I protect the lunch hour just to eat like stupid things. Uh, and it will go ahead and start blocking your calendar and putting that time on your calendar, like a virtual assistant might, just to guarantee that it will look for opportunities and make sure you don't get your day too sandwiched. Um, but uh, if you can get that to roll out across your entire company, then you start other people thinking about how they protect you know, their time and proactively watch their calendar. Yeah. And not contest, you know, context switch themselves to death. That's a great one. I think the lunchtime comment, I started doing that years and years ago when I was, you know, working in corporate and I found myself eating my lunch at my desk. And you find that you're eating your lunch and then it's staying as a little tire around your middle. I'm like, okay, never again. So I don't eat at my desk, even in, you know, we're all home right now, even at home, I don't eat in my office. I eat in the living room. I eat outside. I'll go stand in the driveway and eat a sandwich. You know what I mean? Just to like be elsewhere and not look at a screen while I'm eat. I have done that when it was warm. Yeah. Um, I think it makes sense. I'm sure your neighbor's <laughs> like, there she is again, the crazy lady eating a sandwich in the driveway. Totally. I don't um, care. It yeah. was sunny out. It was nice. You're standing in the sun. We hadn't put the, you know, the patio furniture out yet. Cause it was still cold. I was like, I'm just going to stand here and eat my peanut butter and jelly in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, Absolutely. But <laughs> so all right. Uh, my next question for you is, you know, as an agency owner, what is the most fun thing? You know, you've been doing this a while. You've had some great experience out of all of the things that you've done. What's the number one thing that you're like, oh, this is the best part for me? I like, so TableXI has been very generous about allowing me to experiment and have a go at things. Um, I am given a lot of flexibility to try things that don't make any sense. Um, and I think that's the best part about being uh, in my seat, uh, being the visionary in my companies, I'm allowed to explore and try things and have a go at things. Um, that's a, a reference, by the way, to a process we have called the Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS. Uh, so that's a big thing that we've rolled out. But I think, I mean, this is the company that allowed me to create a conference that aids my direct competitors. I allowed to create a card game, like a physical card game that allows me to think about facilitating things differently. 
Um, we created the workshop and helped think about ways of getting as far away from technology as possible. Like the amount of analog experiences that my digital company has allowed me to invest time in has been wonderful. Um, so I think the thing that I think is the best about this is the ability to experiment and have a go at something, not always knowing where the immediate ROI is gonna be, but I know that there's energy and passion behind it. And invariably those things do return and bring value back to the company. Um, so I really like that. Uh, the experimentation mindset that is very alive and well at, at TableXI means a lot to me. Um, I think having that space to fail and be like, that's okay, you can learn from that as long as you own it. And that the ability to experiment and, and recognize that failure is possible at that innovation path. Um, there's a certain amount of freedom that comes from that. Uh, and so I think that's, that's the thing I get most excited about. You know, you always think about what's your exit plan? And if someone were to buy TableXI and I had to report someone and not have that ability to experiment and try a crazy idea, like that would be soul damaging, I think, to never have the ability to lean into innovation and experimentation the way that we do. Um, so I think that's, there's, there's a great value in that. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a great thing that small businesses, typically, if you don't have a lot of like outside venture capital, if you're, if you've been building yourselves up as we have been, you're in control of your own destiny and you can think about experiments you want to try um, and lean into that. So flexibility and freedom is a great point. I think a lot of agency owners think to start the company thinking about that, right? They, they want to start um, their own business because that's what they want, but uh, do they get that? At what point do they get that in their life? You know, that's something I'm, I'm curious to hear. Like you are like, like 50 people company now, like how yeah. just, so 50 plus, right? Now, and you talked about US. Um, so I want to uh, talk about that, right? Uh, on the process side, uh, when did you start working on EOS or have you implemented it yet? Uh, yeah, we've been doing it for years. I think we're like six, seven years in, um, but it was a response to a massive chaotic incident that occurred. Uh, so I always feel like I give very long answers, but this is a good story at least. Uh, no, so no. Can you define a, EOS for those of us who sure. are familiar with both of you? Sure, sure. Um, so it stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It was popularized by a book called Traction, but basically it's a framework for how you can set up and run a small to medium business. So if people are in the business of software, there's probably like an agile playbook they used to run projects. Think yep. of this as a playbook for running a company. Cool. Um, and it has some very uh, strong opinions on, on what to do and things not to do. Um, so I used to joke that TableXI in its early days was powered by red wine and Thai food. Uh, like we would all, we do our billable work throughout the day. And then at night we'd order in Thai and pour a glass of wine. Be like, all right, what's broken? What do we need to fix? Recruiting, great. Let's everyone talk about recruiting simultaneously. Uh, and it was like a council of elders trying to get together to fix something, which was exactly as efficient as it probably sounds like it was. It was very inclusive, but there was no clear accountability. Uh, we would get together and do this monthly, which meant that people would ignore their stuff for three weeks straight and then scramble to get all their tasks done the, you know, the week before. There was no real clear direction of who's doing what. So everyone was jumping into things that really weren't their expert area or expertise area. Um, EOS tries to bring a lot more focus to uh, a management team by having very clear accountability, having uh, guidance on like cadence when you get together, things that you should be doing quarterly, things you should be doing weekly. Monthly is a stupid cadence. Like you should not be meeting with your team monthly. Nothing happens that way. Um, uh, so they have a lot of opinions on how to, how to structure a team uh, and what the accountability should be and how you start taking things like values and making them feel real, not like motivational posters on a wall. How do you start establishing uh, the culture that you want to have. Um, so that was a very important move uh, for us was to adopt EOS. And it was born out of the fact that we had a very dangerous thing happen in 2012. Um, so there was one metric 
that can kill a business in our line of work faster than any other? I'll be curious, like what's the, if there was one metric you think that could really destroy a business, what, what, what do you think it'd be? Low revenue? Yeah. Wow. Nope, nope. You can have low revenue for a while. That's not that problematic. Employee attrition? People. People, yeah, yeah you, could, like, you, could, you could slowly lose people, but you can borrow people, you can hire, you can always you know, contract, like that won't kill you overnight. Cash, uh, and think about a lack of cash. If you don't have cash in the, in, the, in the bankroll, like that can kill you overnight. And what happens is that early days, especially small agencies have a metric called client concentration risk or CCR is one of the most important things to look at. Basically it's a measurement of how many eggs do you have in one basket. So imagine you're a small agency owner You've got one really big account in Carnival Cruise Line and 2020 happens and you go from having like 70% of your revenue and all your cash from one client goes away overnight, you're dead. Uh, if you have an overabundance of client concentration risk, it can kill you literally within a quarter. Uh, whereas like attrition won't kill you in a quarter, low revenue won't kill you in a quarter. Like you can build on those things, but cash is obviously is king. They say that for a reason. And client concentration risk is something that everyone adopts in their early marketing or early you know, agency days. You generally have like one or two anchor accounts. It's, that's how you build. In our history, we had one client that was over 50%. That's a huge concentration risk. And it was not a good relationship. Uh, and so we decided to exit our biggest client in 2012, not realizing the impact it was gonna have before we had EOS. And everything else became an issue. So this client paid most of our bills. So now we had a collection issue. We found out everyone else was slow paying us and we didn't really focus on that before. Um, they were the, our biggest revenue by far. And whenever we hired more people, they would just hoover them right up into their projects. So now we had a pipeline problem. We never had to really focus on sales before. Um, we had people on the beach for the first time. We had a utilization problem. The only thing we didn't have was a morale problem. Everyone was very happy to move past this really terrible client. Um, but EOS was a response to the fact that we really needed to think about how do we get better accountability and more efficiency in running the business and watch out some of those key metrics. Um, how big were you uh, at that time? When you teen, adopted High teens, low 20s, I want to say. Okay. Um, so do, do, you, do you think that that is the right time? I mean, so your, your, your need to EOS was not because, not based on the number of people or the, how big you were, it was a specific incident that happened then at that time you adopted that. That and the fact that it felt like we didn't, it wasn't very efficient. Like I said, it was, we, what we lacked in, in experience, we more than made up with enthusiasm. It was a lot of great discussion over red wine and Thai food, but like it wasn't the most efficient way of running a business and we needed to get efficient very quickly. Like we didn't, uh, when, you, when you fire your biggest client, um, you got to, and without, and we didn't want to let anybody go. We didn't want to have layoffs from them. We wanted to move past that quickly. Um, we needed to get very efficient, which means clear accountability, clear ownership, better direction. Uh, and so a great tenet of EOS, for example, is that one person can do two things, but two people cannot do one thing, which means I can be both a visionary and the head of sales, but I can't have two people be head of sales. We have to have one person saying, I've got the accountability for where we're going to go target clients. Um, and so in that case, what we used to do is like everyone would swarm around one topic at a time, which was super inefficient. And you want to have that clear accountability to see that person can be thinking about that and really focusing on that. Again, focus is a big part of what is often denied agency owners because they're so stretched thin. One of the best things the US does is get you to focus on your accountability and delegate things to other people who can focus on their accountabilities. Um, so I happen to be a big EOS fan. We've rolled it out, like I said, about six, seven years ago. Uh, I've introduced it to most of the, my peers, my friendly you know, competitors in the space. And I think a lot of people have gotten value from that. 
Um, yeah. And it, it has been one of the best things we've done to get, uh, I think they call it traction for a reason. They got more traction on our business, just making sure we could grow and scale more efficiently. Yeah. And uh, your organization, um, do you have partners or you are the only sole owner? No, I'm not even the biggest owner. Um, so uh, I joined the company as the COO back in 2011. Um, so that my first year was trying to recover from the fact we just fired our biggest client. That was fun. Um, uh, so Welcome I to became, the party. <laughs> exactly, like, oh, yeah, you're here, help sort of solve here. something. Um, uh, and so I became the CEO about five years ago. Um, and so I am one of the people who owns the business, uh, but we have you know, the regional founders and owners, and recently uh, some of our employees have becoming owners as well, which is really great to diversify the ownership to the people who are actually doing the work. Um, so, Yeah, the reason I asked was because uh, EOS is something we are trying to implement as well, and we are at 400 people right now, and you know, we, by no means we are thinking of you know, having it implement company-wide. I mean, it will take years for us, but the challenge we are having is right now we are partners, but I, and I know agency owners who are, who are partners and sometimes it's not clear between the roles who is going to take the visionary and integrated role. Sometimes they overlap. Um, so that's why I asked in your case, you clearly said that you were, you are the visionary, but when you started, was it very clear or did you made it such that, no, I am going to be the visionary irrespective of if I can do some integrated role or not, but I am the one who is going to take the visionary role. No one else will do that. No, it wasn't clear. Like that's, that's the, one of the hardest things is knowing what your real skills are. Like I was a not, I was an, it was an okay integrator. I was like a B minus integrator. Like I wasn't great at that. Um, and what we found actually, I created my partner for this. Um, he was the original founder and the original CEO. Um, is we had two people who were like kind of visionaries trying to figure out where the company should be going and no one was doing the integrator job very well. Um, and in our line of work, as we, he was very aware of what his skills were, what he wanted to do. And he liked being entrepreneurial. He liked building things. He was much more of a zero to one. I want to start things. And TableXI was well beyond that. At that point, we're now 25 people and growing and building, which is more of the things I got excited about. Um, so he actually left to become a CEO of one of our smaller healthcare clients and really got back to the scrappy entrepreneurial roots and gave me the CEO spot. And then I got people to bring, jump in to become the next integrator. Um, and so it was an evolution for us. But yeah, that is that pairing, that visionary integrator pairing is the, like the most important to get right. Uh, and I was hired to be that integrator and I was like, that was okay, but I wasn't the one we needed. Uh, and I think that was also a realization is, you know, figuring out what I'm good at, what I'm not and bringing in people that could frankly do a far better job than I could in that role. Yeah. When you were exploring kind of your own skill set, now I'm going off in the left field, so bear with me for a minute. Um, you know, in various corporate roles that I've held, you've had, you know, Myers-Briggs tests, you've had um, disk assessments and stuff like that. Or is there anything that you use as a tool to kind of understand where your role is? You know, some of us are, are lucky and know skills and some of us are a little bit I mean, I've done a million and one Myers-Briggs and I end up in the middle all of the time. I'm like, that's not useful. <laughs> yeah, you're like, go again. Matter. How does so that there, help me? There have been some things uh, that tell me more about like my personality. I think that's yeah. always interesting. Um, the one that I actually focused on that helped me more than anything else was less about who I am as a person, but more like jobs to be done, what brings me energy. And so mm -hmm. It was an exercise called delegate and elevate where you think about like, what are the things I typically do? And you break up a grid into um, things I'm good at that I like, things I'm good at that I love, things I'm not good at 
that I like and things like that. And then you kind of look at this and things like I'm not good at and that I hate. So like, obviously those are the things you shouldn't do. But like, I noticed I was not good at writing contracts and I was never, I didn't like doing it. I wasn't good at it. So we, we do a whole project, the project we finish and the contract still wasn't done because I just hated all the legalese. And it was like a handshake agreement the entire time, which is uh -huh. so stupid. Um, so I was like, all right, I should have nothing to do with contracts. I love sales. I just don't want anything to do with contracts. And there were things I liked, but I was like, okay, at doing it. And what you really want to do is get the stuff that you love and you're really great at, the things that bring you energy. It doesn't even feel like work anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I think rather than trying to be like, am I introverted or extroverted? Like there are some things about my personality, which are good to know for the people I collaborate with. But in terms of where I focus my time, I try to focus more on the observable behavior of what brought me energy and what didn't and talked more about those skills. Uh, sorry, those those um, jobs to be done than personal like attributes of my personality. Yeah, rather uh, less personality tests, more. Yeah, I think like and those are all valuable, but I think it didn't help me figure out like what I should be holding on to and what should I totally. Give well, that's it's interesting because it's different, you know, in a in a in a much more traditional business and uh, agency versus regular business environment. Personality tests when you're trying to figure out roles and responsibilities among executives is one thing versus in an agency, you're trying to figure out how do we get all this stuff done and how to parse it out and things like that. So it's interesting. I think sometimes there's a desire to like not let go of stuff until you're bigger. Like, oh, we can't hire a marketing person until they get bigger. We can't hire an HR person until they get bigger. Yeah. And generally speaking, I would say uh, that's- Hire HR um, real quick. I would, yeah, there are certain people I'm like, you will just and benefit the CFO. and get some of those people in place. Yeah, like that was one of the best things we ever did was bring in someone that could be not a part-time CFO, but someone who really run that part of the business. Yep. Uh, every time we've gotten rid of the, someone's going to do this part-time and brought in someone to own that, it's been like, you know, a next leap in our evolution. Um, do that mm -hmm. before you think you need to. True, true. All right. I want to pivot back to your uh, earlier point. You mentioned um, when you started EOS because you had a very big risky client. Um, how, when you started the business, uh, the agency, how were you positioning yourself? Because that is one thing that agency owners really struggle with. Like we are full service. We focus only on one domain, one industry, one tech stack. How did you, like, what do you, what did you do when you were 15, 20 people? And how did that change over time? Now, when you are 50 people company, you know, how, you know, if you can share some experience yeah, there. It's changed a lot, I think. And so that's one of the things, again, with a company that based on strongly, you know, experimentation principles, you see our services evolve as the market evolves, as our clients evolve. Um, we started as a strategy company, not a development one. Um, and so we believe that trust was harder to build than technology. And we would come in as a, a digital consigliere of sorts or CTO service for hire, advising them on, you know, do you buy versus your build? And if you're going to build what languages, what frameworks, that kind of thing. Um, and clients would ask like, okay, well, can you help us build that? And we would say, no, like we're a strategist, go hire developers for that. Like that's not what, we're, what we do. Um, and we realized uh, while we were building this trusted relationship and we wanted to stay engaged, we just didn't have the bench strength early on. It's like, we, we could do the work, we just didn't have the people. So we pivoted and started hiring more developers. And then, you know, clients would say, well, we have a strategy and you're building this thing now. Can we put it into production? Can we host it? Can we monitor it? And we would say, no, 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 no. We're a dev shop now. Like go, go hire an SS admin for that. Um, and, you know, think about if something happens in the middle of the night and the site goes down, we'd point our fingers at a sysadmin saying, hey, it's configured wrong. They'd point back and be like, no, you built it wrong. And our clients wouldn't know or care. Uh, and so we had to think about, okay, we got to start taking on some DevOps type work. Uh, this is before AWS made our life a lot easier, but how to carry 
pagers and have racks of servers and worry about uptime and redundancy and resiliency and, and privacy and security and like all the things that go into a hosting maintenance monitoring practice. Um, and that worked, I would say, for a little while until we started working with storytellers. And so you mentioned Roger Ebert and the Field Museum and people like that, Pachakacha. Um, I, I appreciate the attempt to, to mention that because it's a great client in Japan. Um, <laughs> storytellers have a different need entirely that totally broke TableXI. At that point, we were a strategy dev DevOps. And so everything looked like it was designed by a bunch of developers because it had been. Uh, mm -hmm. Like that wasn't a thing that we had. And storytellers don't care about the back end as much. They care about, Roger Ebert would assume the site would handle heavy load and traffic. What he cared about was how quickly can someone find a review? You know, how usable is this site? How quickly can I get to that right piece of content? The Field Museum had like 3% or something of their archive is displayed. Everything else is all this amazing research that they do. And so for all this content was really important. Um, and that's why we like needed to start working with and would pair with design firms that were really good at what they did until 2011 and the browser changed. And now it's all responsive and you gotta start mm -hmm. thinking about a digital design and you gotta start worrying about mobility. People are working on their phones more than on their laptops anymore. Um, and so we tablets. ended up acquiring, what's tablets, that? Tablets screwed everything up. Everything, yeah. Like you had, and so, and if you were working mainly with like marketing designers or branding designers that couldn't understand the change and the responsive nature or the limitations of the no, browser. No, I can't put this next to work. it. It doesn't work because it won't, you know, I told, yeah, I live in that so world. Sorry. That I was a, a big pivot for us, <laughs> I think, was actually acquiring a design firm in 2012 and starting to build design more and more into the way that we think. Uh, and so we went from being this dev shop uh, kind of and, and DevOps kind of place into a space where we're now doing more design thinking. And so, and, you know, broad brushstrokes, the beginning of the service offering was around how do you build the thing right? So heavy focus on backend scalability and, and, and on the architecture of the thing, iterative development, agile processes, all of that. But the last eight years have been trying to expand beyond how do I build the thing right to how do I build the right thing? And so this is where you start adopting design thinking and getting to know the needs of the user and helping them to figure out what the right problem is before you identify a solution or get too attached to a solution and you do more prototyping. I think there's been a big pivot in our space towards what we call product innovation, which is more, uh, you know, we're not gonna come in with a very expensive PowerPoint deck and say, good luck, like we're not IDEO, we're not just strategy only, uh, but we're also not trying to be cognizant where you have like a large offshore team who needs all the requirements spec'd out and they'll deliver that spec. Like we like, coming up with the idea and the strategy, but then having the team that can go execute on it. Um, and so it's been a gradual pivot every couple of years as we think about our evolving service offerings from strategy only to dev only to strategy dev DevOps. And then with the adoption of a different kind of client, seeing how design and design principles can change that from being like a dev shop into this kind of product innovation company. Um, and it's been a very gradual evolution, I would say over 18 years. Yeah, so it's 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 great to hear. I'm 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 curious to know more because many companies or many smaller agencies would think to go on that path, uh, but the challenge they face is in this question in the dilemma of when I want to scale, should I hire someone right away? Should I start with contractors? Should I how 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 should I scale my growth so that it's you know, it's sustainable, it's not risky sure. and it doesn't put, you know, so when you are thinking like, and, and it, that thought may change after COVID because COVID has changed, you know, the style of work life for everybody. So people are already thinking remote, they may not go back to office and all that. So I'll, I'll ask that later, but for now, you know, when you were smaller, 
Um, how did you approach your growth? Were you always, you know, we need some, everybody in-house. We want, if we are doing this, we, it has to be our team. Otherwise we won't go. I mean, how, how are you addressing that? It's, uh, it's a good question. I don't think I had the right mindset when I first joined. Um, I would hire only when I had a need that I couldn't fill. So you're very reactive hiring as opposed to just finding good people and then finding work for them to do. I feel like uh, you should always be trying to hire good people, whether you have an open role or not, uh, or open need or not, because you can always find, it'll encourage you to find honestly better work. Um, uh, so I think I used to do it more reactionary in time, um, but I tried, I looked at this and so we had, when we lost, uh, we removed our biggest client from the portfolio. And that's when we realized we needed to rethink a lot of the ways we were doing things. Uh, we took a, an atypical approach to this. So I wanted to see how other companies were doing, solving these ridiculously difficult challenges. Like running a business of our size is a very difficult thing. You're always trying to balance somehow like sales and recruiting. It seems like that's always what you're doing. Do I have enough work or do I have enough people? You're just, you oscillate back and forth. Um, and so I started uh, this thing called OpsComp, which is a connection to some of the best agencies in the world that did what we did. Uh, so professional services firms that were, you know, between 20 and 200 people. So no Accenture type, you know, huge companies and no independent contractors either. That were all professional services. That were all in custom software that had the background to understand why I talk about things like agile and design thinking, but they also understand things like utilization and forecasting and the things that go into a services business. Uh, and we flew in, people got all together. Uh, I rented a house in South Carolina, then had to rent out two other ones because thankfully everyone I invited basically said yes and came together to talk shop about how they did things. Um, and I referenced that only because it changed how I started thinking about this. I used to always try to balance those two areas. Like, do I hire now or do I wait? And what we ended up doing was just always trying to do the best, you know, I get the best work we could. And if we were ever oversold, I now had this amazing group of friendly competitors I could say, uh, I have a project I can't staff. Does anyone have someone on the beach and they can join my team? Um, that was a watershed moment, I think, for every one of us in the industry to start looking at and living in this OpsCom community. Because now if I have a developers on the, on the bench or on the beach, they get to pair with other company and see how they do things. Or if I'm oversold, I get to borrow help and learn how they do things. It's disgusting in Chicago for a good six months out of the year. And so now I have the opportunity to do international dev exchanges and have people work from other cities you know, to work in... Europe or Costa Rica or Uruguay, like you get this amazing overflow network of people and you get to see how they all work and how they engage and learn for their team. So I'm a big believer of this idea of cooperation where your direct competitors can actually provide you immense value. And I think one of the things I really leaned into early in my career at TableXI was building that network of trusted peers that I could, rather than stress out about trying to hire someone immediately for the project that starts next week, borrow the help when I need it. And while I'm always taking time to recruit, recruiting can't you know, turn on a dime. Um, but that's been a huge change and huge benefit for us that I think even in last year in pandemic, I wanna say seven different companies were working for TableXI with us at one point. And I had team, I had like two or three people that were working for other companies at one point. Um, uh, really, I really believe in this model of cooperation and, and directly working with, with peers in the industry slash competitors. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, goes back to something you mentioned earlier, which comes down to the trust and building that, you know, the relationship. We've talked a lot in this podcast about relationships and networking and how to do that and who to meet and, you know, and how to kind of build up, build that up. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that I think for you and I have such a good time on this podcast, because it's so interesting to hear everybody's, you know, the value that we put on meeting people and the value that we put on 
building these trusted relationships, um, even in, in, you know, coming from a, I know I've talked a lot about coming from a corporate environment into the agency world, you know, back and forth over the years. It's just so interesting how the agency world, we work our little butts off. Like I'll say that, you know, and I think everyone would agree with me on that, but you, it's, it's, you're not going at it. I love that cooper. What's the word that you said? Competition. Yeah. yeah I don't know if I could re-say that. You've got a lot of words I cannot pronounce today. <laughs> pretty good. Keep you on your toes. Yeah. But I think it's, I, I, that's totally it. Like that's the secret sauce, the ingredient that you're, you're missing in other industries is where there's enough work for all of us. Let's figure out how to do good work. Cause that's what drives the motivation there. Trust each other, not to screw each other over. And you, I think that's one of the most important, honestly, of all the things I'm proud of, I think the creation of OpsConf may be one of the best ones. Um, TableXI is an amazing company that does great work. Uh, but by creating OpsConf, we started building that trust yeah, with other other companies and like making sure that everyone saw that like it is a business and I've lost projects to other people at OpsComp. Uh, we've had other OpsComp companies actually acquire each other. People have moved back and forth. Like you get it, there's competition, but there's so much value in learning from people and seeing how they do things. I think if you can get, so that was the very first year we said, uh, when we all got together and everyone was kind of looking like, what are we here for exactly? What is this all about? And so I went first. I was like, here's the things I know how to do really well. Uh, P.S. I just fired my biggest client and I have no idea how to do all these other things. Um, and other people were very good about, okay, here's what you should do first. And here's how I can help you. And the first rule we had was, you know, that first year, you don't have to share financials and you don't have to do anything else. But if someone calls you on the bat phone, like, hey, I need help. You got to get back to them in 24 hours. And that was it. And from that began that trust, that relationship building between initially it was between you know, operators and CEOs. And then as people started collaborating more, then developers started meeting each other and designers started meeting each other. And so we're actually having to rename it because it's, you know, OpsConf sounds like an operations conference, a thing that happens once a year. It is straight up a community at this rate. Like people are in Slack talking all the time, sharing leads, sharing advice, getting help. Um, it's been one of my favorite things to see evolve. But I agree with you. There's, there's enough of that work going around and you shouldn't come at these relationships with kind of gloves up of like, they're gonna steal my secret sauce. They're gonna steal my, my way of doing things or my people. If you can lean into that, uh, that trust and build in those connections, there's so much to be learned by, by pairing with your competitors. Um, there's a great book uh, called uh, The Infinite Game. Are you familiar with that, Simon Sinek? By Simon Sinek, yeah. Yep. One of his, there, and he talks about ways people should be thinking about running a business. And one of them is this idea yeah, of worthy, worthy rivals. Um, yeah. I love that I have competitors that are phenomenal and challenge me and keep, I, I, I love when I see like I'm going up against things. I'm like, I'm gonna have to work my ass off to win this project. Um, but it also means I get to learn from them and get the advice from them. Uh, so some of the best people I know in our industry are in OpsConf and we get together you know, once a year uh, back when humans could see each other and like get that sense of inspiration. It is one of my favorite things to do. You talked, you know, so much about OpsCom um, and how much how it has changed and helped your business. Um, I would be curious, like, you know, um, so for other people, like, is this open to everybody? How do people join? Like, how can how do how can they become part of this community and can leverage the learnings that you are sharing with each other? I think so. OpsCom is a small group of people that we've been. Uh, it's about you know, thirty different companies right now across many, a couple a couple different countries. Um, it is uh, something that we have been protective of because we don't want to be, you know, 500 companies and things. We like having a small group of people that can really go deep with each other. 
and it's pretty heavily vetted. So we make sure that clients have, or the people are coming in rather, have the right values, you know, similar size, similar challenge, but we have a very strong ethical code of conduct of how we want people to behave because you are competitors. Um, uh, but I think while OpsComp is a pretty closed community that way, um, there are, uh, so the Bureau of Digital has created a series of these things like owner camp and there's like, I think, agency camp and other things you can go to to meet people at a larger scale. Um, what I liked about the OpsConf model is that it's not a for-profit thing. Like TableXI has created this as a way to help each other out and build this group in, in, our, in our space. Um, but it's not like a for-profit center. So we, when we charge money to go to the event, it's to cover the cost of the food and the house rental. We're not trying to profit on someone else's mistakes. And so for me, it's been very important to have a very like, that, like Gettysburgian approach kind of like for the community, by the community kind of aspect. Um, there are places you can go to that literally bring agency owners together. It's a, I think it's a more of expensive thing because it's an actual like, like for-profit enterprise that they're running. And, but I've heard great things about it as well. So there are other ways I think you can tap into a community uh, or start a thing like this. Like this was a grassroots thing that I did six, seven years ago that's been hugely valuable to all of us. And I think that uh, the right companies will appreciate that sense of inspiration rather than fear of competition. Yeah. No, I, I like the targeted approach that you have to it too. I'm just, you know, I think one of the things that has cropped up during, uh, during our home time this past year, I'll call it that, um, is a lot of these niche communities who have gotten bringing people together that you would never meet normally. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, selfishly, there's a lot of women's ones that I joined recently. There's a big one. There's a lot of marketing targeted ones. There's a lot of location-based one, but there's a lot of people who are industry focused and they, and they focus on some of these things. And I think it's, it's really cool to see the craving. I'm going to, I'll call it that of people to be able to connect with like-minded folks to learn and evolve and grow from each other. I mean, you were a little ahead of the curve with this sucker, but it's nice to see that it's, you know, there's space for it, you know, going back to yeah. your, your conversation earlier about finding space for thinking, you know, there needs to be space for learning and networking. I just, you know, I just keep thinking back to my years of corporate, like I, you know, you'd go, there were a couple of networking events every year, you know, marketing conferences that you attend, that would be so fun. And you see your people and you meet, but you, you don't have any other time to kind of digest and evolve. And I, I know I just, it's a cool, it's a cool little entity you've built. And you know. I agree. I think that, well, thank you for saying that. I think you're right. People are seeing the value in this. And I'd like to think that people now understand the value of having that, uh, that peer group more than ever before. Um, and I think something like this is different than you would see at like a Vistage, uh, which is also very valuable to get insights from outside your community. But there's nothing quite like talking to people who know exactly what you're going through, like literally your direct competitors totally. who, who understand exactly the challenges of uh, diversity and recruiting and utilization and planning and forecasting, like all the things that go into running an agency. Um, so if people don't have that kind of thing, I would definitely look up Bureau of Digital. Um, I think they do great events. And I would think about yeah. leaning into that sense of cooperation. Certainly. Um, all right, a couple more questions on this line. And then I want to ask you about some of the other stuff that you've done. So the first one I have um, is, you know, what keeps you up at night as an agency CEO? You know, you're, you're a little bit of a larger organization than the folks we normally talk to. You know, I'd, I'd be curious, since you've gone through some of these roller coaster rides and things like that right now today, you know, what do you when you go to bed tonight? Are you going to be what do you what are you thinking about? What's what's kind of gnawing at you? I think for us, uh, 
we've always had a so company culture has been extremely important to table xi over the years um and we've always been very intentional about how we foster that um so one of the things when we built out our space gosh was that eight years ago now um we had we thought about what's the best way we can encourage people to uh show up at work be effective and not you know, not always be so behind the keyboard they can't learn from other people and so we broke out a big part of the office to build in an amazing custom kitchen ovens mm -hmm. uh, all the duct work we made like oh, a nice. commercial grade kitchen uh, we hired a chef and we're like we're going to make meals every day so you're encouraged to step away from your keyboard and eat together and cook together and like the whole office smells wonderful like 11 45 our clients will come and eat lunch with the team like it's it's it seems like a ridiculous expense especially when we were down to 10 15 people we'll be like yep one of those 15 is a chef uh, but it made for an amazing opportunity to break away from the desk and catch up and talk to people uh and now you know in the last year alone we've hired someone in Aberdeen Scotland in Colorado in Canada in New York uh, we have people across the country across the world and they can't get together with the chef. Uh, they can't hang out. And of course, it hardly matters right now. Nobody can. So our chef has been amazing at pivoting. Uh, we went and created our own at Table XI. We created our own like farm to table XI experience where he'd deliver, you know, deliver food to our clients and to deliver food to our employees. And food has been a very strong part of our company culture. But I think we're recognizing as many have that the needs of space are different than they maybe used to be. We used to have an office space. We don't need an office space. We might need an event space. We might need a facilitation space, but rows and rows of desks, we don't need that anymore. Uh, and so thinking about what space means to us and for a company that invested so intentionally in the space to foster the culture that we want, we have to think about other ways to foster that culture when people can't share space together. Uh, and you know, as great as Zoom is and Slack is, it's not a replicate for, for that ability to share space. So I think what's keeping me up at night now is we now, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, pandemic will be uh, getting behind us. We will have vaccines. We'll have the ability to gather. And I think I'm now trying to think about what is that? What is the purpose of space, and how do we use that effectively? That people can work from home. All of us have seen some benefits in doing that, uh, but I think there's a sense of isolation that's come with it as well. So I don't think it's a problem of working from home. It's working from home during a pandemic when you can't leave the house. And yeah, so totally. How do we think about space going forward? Um, which is kind of like a meta question. And then how do we think about other cultural ways to stay connected when you can't rely on the space to be an advocate for that? Um, all culture is built by two things, rituals and storytelling. And we gotta think about new rituals that will allow people to connect when they can't connect over food like we used to. And uh, you know, ways that they can engage and talk and do and, and, and tell stories about what they're working on or tell stories about what they did over the weekend. Uh, there's lots of ways humans need to connect. And so I think we're trying to think about what's the next wave of what that looks like for to foster a company whose culture is as strong as Table XI's so we don't lose that sense of, you know, that, that belonging sense. Yeah, the water... So oh, sorry. I was just going to make a really bad Boston joke. I was going to say the water bubbler for... Those... Oh, yeah. You know, I, there's no water bubbler conversations, you know, for those listening, water bubbler is a fountain, um, <laughs> drinking fountain. Yeah. Sorry, real bad Boston joke in there. Go ahead, Varun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just make a comment though. So it sounds like, you know, after COVID, it, that has definitely changed the way you're going to work and you're thinking it's, you're not going to back to, to in, in, in person space and it's going to be mostly remote as much as. I think we'll have some space. Uh, I don't think we'll be fully remote, um, but the space that we do have will have a different orientation towards 
facilitation towards team space, towards collaboration space. I just don't think the office space in the traditional sense of what we maybe had before will come back for us. Are you excited about that? Do you think it opens doors for, um, for you to, well, how, yes, it impacts the culture, but um, do you think, is it going to be good for the business or it will impact? I think it allows me to think about things differently. And I always think that's a good thing. It allows me to think about how can I use this constraint to get more creative? Um, yeah. So I'll give you an example of how things got a lot better because of this force constraint. So we have a, a ritual, uh, as I said, rituals and storytelling, very important. One of our rituals is something called an all hands where we all get together every three months. And typically what we do in an all hands is say, uh, what do you wanna hear about? An AMA, ask me anything, what do you wanna talk about? Um, now imagine you're a CEO and you wanna know what's on everyone's mind. In a pre-pandemic world, what I would have done is walk into the kitchen, have lunch with folks and be like, what should we talk about next week? And I would hear from you know, people that are eating lunch that day, that I'd miss people that were working from home or I'd miss the people that were uh, you know, distributed. But I get like 80% of the people, which is like indicatively good enough, theoretically. Um, now pandemic hits and I can't work anymore. So what would I do? I would realize I can't bump into people. So I'd send a survey. It's like, what do you want to talk about? And then as a survey, I would get uh, like individual people's responses, right? So Varun, I hear from you and Jesse, I hear from you. And I, you know, I'd have to like, look at all those responses and parse them and figure out what are the things that are most frequently mentioned? That's what we should talk about. Um, the problem is that you lose the ability to see each other's stuff, right? Like I get to see everyone's responses as the person who sent the survey, but individually you don't get to see each other's ideas. And so that was like, I would say a good like amateur way of hearing what's going on when I was early in the pandemic. Now I'm thinking about how can I more effectively hear what's going on when I don't have the luxury of having everyone together. And so this has forced me to think of new creative ways of doing that. So are you familiar, for example, with a tool called Thought Exchange? What exchange? It's called Thought Exchange, the tool. Have you heard of this before? I have, yeah. but I don't know if I know more than the fact that I've, I've heard about it. If I share my screen, will that work? Will I have the ability to do that and actually? Sure. Um, I think it's interesting to consider what, uh, so you know, how could we do things differently? I think that's the really, uh, I think creative opportunity we all have now is to look at things and do them in a bit different uh, approach. So if you were in that position. Um, just, just one before you share screens, uh, if people are listening, they can't see it. So we'll just have to make sure you verbalize whatever you're. you're yeah, I will, I will. Okay. So in a thought exchange, what you do is you ask an open-ended question, just like I would have done in a survey, just like I would have done in the kitchen. What should we talk about next week? Yeah. And you will answer your, you'll answer it. But afterward, what you'll see is everyone else's answers anonymously. And you can upvote and be like, ooh, I didn't think of that. That's a good idea. We should talk oh, about yeah. that. But this other one, like, that's not that important to me. And so you start actually interacting on each other's ideas. When we did this, uh, I saw, of course, what do you think the number one thing would be to talk about right now? Everyone's biggest idea is office space. What are we doing with the space? What do we move back into the space? What do we, we can get a new space? Like you would look at this and think, this is the most important thing. It was the most frequently mentioned. This is what it would look like if it was a survey. Everyone wants to talk about space. Second to last, mental health and burnout. One person mentioned it, not that important. If I was looking at just survey results, I would say office space is the number one thing by an order of magnitude what we should be talking about. But when you do a thought exchange, you don't just see what was most often said. You say, what was highest voted? So if I change the axis and say, show me the things that people looked at, now it's quite a different picture. Office space is close to the bottom, but second from the top is mental health and burnout. Only one or two brave people had the 
you know, the guts talk about like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. But when everyone saw that, they're like, yeah, that's real. I feel that. That's the thing we should be talking about as a business. Uh, when I look at this, the highest thing we had, the highest voted thing, we had a great year last year and now we're trying to grow even more. Can we please talk about burnout and mental health? <laughs> that's a gutsy thing for someone to say. Totally. But by leaning into different ways of engaging, as a CEO, I have the opportunity to hear things I wouldn't have heard. I would not have heard this in the kitchen, nor would I have heard it in the survey. But because I'm distributed, I have to think about a different way of listening. Uh, and if you can think about pivoting your, pat your patterns of behavior, you can actually do things in a way you couldn't have done when you were all together. Uh, and so like, this was a really healthy conversation that we had because we started thinking about other ways of engaging remote employees. And does that make sense? Like the, the things that yeah. you used to do, the crutches totally. you used to have aren't as good as maybe new ways of working. And I think this will force all of us to think about other ways of hearing each other. Well, and it's and that particular topic in general, I think one of the struggles I'm, this is, I think for everybody, regardless of agency, but as a working human is how do you balance life Then the ways that you used to balance it are different. You know, when you're working in an office, there was a time where you had to get in the car and drive home, or you had to leave the building and facilitate your transportation to your house, whether that's feet or something on wheels or other mode of transportation, broomstick or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, how do you deal with the de-stressors? Like right, right now we it have- things, right? Like you used to have a commute to decompress and now you've got 10 seconds between being CEO and dad. Like it's a really hard decompression. Yeah. Or even just like, you know, your commute to we, the joke in the morning is we, we, we both drink coffee and it's um, big football fans in this house. So we're watching a lot of the coverage because it's free agency right now. So there's a lot of stuff happening, <laughs> totally, you know, nerding out. So we're watching, you know, sports news in the morning, you know, and so it's like, okay, see you later. I'm going to commute. Okay. Me too. And we go to respective offices and it's, you know, it's a, in the evening, we found that we both need to like ignore each other for an hour before you dive in and you go and you know, talk about something else or you, you deal with what, you know, the question is, if you ask me what's for dinner, I'm going to, you know, bite your head off. Like, I don't even want to talk about it right now. So it's, it's, that's a really interesting chart for those of you who are watching the video. Um, and for those of you listening, it was, can you, I think you did a nice job verbalizing it. So Great. Um, I know you have a couple of other, I, I just want to ask you about one, you know, you have your, your meetings done, right? You've ops conf, we talked about walk shop. I want to ask about the sticky note game. Um, as we kind of pivot here for a minute. Um, can you tell us what that is? Where does the idea come from? You know, the creator of the sticky note game? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll answer a question with a question. If you're onboarding someone, what do you think is the most important thing to do in an onboarding process? What makes for a really good onboarding? Oh, you're asking hard questions today. I, I like it. I, I think for me, onboarding someone is um, not having them drink from a fire hose. It's like introducing them to pieces so they understand it and they can feel, I think making sure you're setting up clear goals and they can feel success very, very quickly. There needs to be a positive association with the brand or the company that you're giving them a task and they've achieved it very quickly quickly in that first week or so. Yeah, I would, I would add them, I would as associate them with a buddy. I think that is super important that they need somebody, um, you know, who they can reach out to. Uh, that is for us, we do that, uh, you know, more often than, than not, because, you know, it's super important. <laughs> I think elements of what you both said, that's how I started our program as well. So you mentioned not drinking from the fire hose. There's so much you have to learn when you go to a new company. And so I would focus on context. I thought that was the most important thing. So I tell them about 
uh, the history of the company and like where the our ridiculous name came from and like what uh, the history is, you know, how we fired our biggest clients and moved past that, like all the lore and the stories that explain how, you know, who we are. Um, I thought that's what made up for the best onboarding. And then to your point, uh, I started thinking about, well, gosh, context only gets you so far. We really need to pivot and focus on belonging. Um, and so that's when you get the idea of like having a buddy and having someone that can like walk you around, introduce you to people, explain why and how we do things. So you're not all on your own. Um, you get the company swag and you get all the things that make you feel like you're part of a new team. Yeah. I don't mean it to, like both of what you just said are very important. Um, I think context and belonging are the cornerstones of most people's onboarding. Um, but Jesse, you mentioned something else, which I think is the most important thing that's often overlooked is that the single most important thing to do in onboarding is the proper expectation of what success looks like. Mm -hmm. um, if you can tell someone, this is the goal, this is what we expect of you and make that very clear, they'll have a much better understanding of how they can bring value to an organization, which is the thing everyone really wants to know. Besides where's the bathroom with everyone's name, like knowing what success looks like. And that's a two-way street. We also need to know what success looks like for them. And so we created the sticky note game initially as an onboarding technique where uh, people don't always know what's next for them or what's best in their career. They don't always have a handle on that. And I've seen, honestly, people's soul get crushed by being like, where do you want to be in 10 years? And like, you know, who knows? I'll, maybe I'll have kids. Maybe I won't. I'm, 10 years is too far out. Uh, or you give like a really heavyweight HR tool and evaluation to fill out. Now I'm doing disc profiling and everything else. So the sticky note game is the premise that expectation setting is incredibly important and that uh, people are more important than process and tools. So you start the sticky note game in complete silence and you're in a room with three people with two different color sticky notes. The person who's new with one color and then probably like their buddy or the sponsor and someone else who can be does a similar function or similar role in another color. And you ask the question, let's say we're doing it for Jesse and the three of us were in the room, we'd say, uh, it's six months from now and Jesse just killed it. Like those first six months were amazing. What happened? What did that look like? And then in 10 minutes, there's no one talks and just writing one idea down per sticky note. And then we started affinity mapping them. It was like, what ideas do you have? And so Jesse made something like, I ran in the Boston Marathon. So I left every day at four o'clock. I met with my running group and I was able to achieve this incredible milestone in my personal life. And that would be something we had no idea. Uh, so we might say, wow, okay, that's great to know. Don't put you in the Singapore project where it has different hours. And then we would say, you gave a talk at Windy City Rails and you gave a, a whole uh, uh, online, you know, great presentation about how to refactor legacy code. And you might say like, oh my God, public speaking. I did not know that was a thing that you thought I should be doing. I've never done that before. And so when we start mapping out very clear expectations, both from the person and the company, we get a sense of where there may be gaps or where there's overlaps. And then as an employer, as a person who's looking at across everyone's sticky note games, I can see things like five people want to get better at uh, JavaScript. Uh, so I can figure out who they should be pairing with. Three people are trying to get better at facilitation. There's another ritual we have, again, rituals and storytelling, very important. Um, when a team first gets together, they do what's called a team agreement and everyone brings their sticky note game to the team agreement. So they might say like, listen, I really wanna get better at facilitating. And so the team might say, okay, you take the next retrospective and one will tell you how you did. Um, it allows you to create opportunities that are directly related to their growth path, but it's also easier to give someone feedback when they're blatantly asking for it. When they're like, hey, you know I'm trying to get better at this. This is the stuff I wanna hear more about. So it makes it easier to tell someone, hey, you could have done this, you could have done that. Um, and so we have a, a tradition now where a ritual where every time someone does a sticky note game, they mail it out to the entire company. And it's amazing to see people be like, oh, me too, we should totally pair on that. Or like, hey, just even like an attaboy, like that's amazing, keep up the good work. I can't wait to see when that happens. Um, and it allows everyone to understand uh, that growth is important. And so it allows people to talk about where they're going next. 
And the reason why I like it so much is because it's literally Sharpies and sticky notes. There's no mm -hmm. tool you've got to license. There's no heavyweight process. You just have to carve out the time to understand what's important to people and help them figure out what their growth plans uh, are going to bring the most value. Um, and so we got, we got asked about this a lot. There are probably a hundred different companies now in the U.S. that roll out sticky note games. Yeah. So we actually made a site about it. If you go to stickynote.game, uh, there's a whole process of how do you facilitate it? How do you run it? How do you digitize it? How do you like do it at scale? Um, it stopped being onboarding for us. Everyone in the company does a sticky note game every six months. Like that's just a thing that we do to think about growth and you know the evolution of people's skills. Well, it's such an interesting, I do, a, I've done a lot of interviewing of um, salespeople and marketing people throughout my career. And one of the most interesting things that I've noticed is you get a lot of salespeople who decide they don't like sales and that's totally normal, but they want to move to marketing and there tends to be a stigma associated with that. Oh, it means you failed as a salesperson. It means you sucked as a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to a lot of junior people. I've done some stuff with some colleges locally here in the Boston area. And so I've got a lot of these kids reaching out. Can you help me? How do I talk about this? And I, there's one in particular I talked to a couple of weeks ago who was in sales. He was looking for some marketing. He was saying, hey, you run an agency. I know you work with a bunch of companies. You got any side help? You know, is there any side help you need? And I'm like, are you in sales? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay, let me tell you how to pitch me. And we had a really interesting conversation. And I feel like that sticky note game might be a really great transition for folks moving departments within, because I said, you need to go back and talk to your marketing team and make a friend and say, hey, I'm interested in learning marketing. Salespeople, if they decide they don't like sales and are really interested in marketing can be really terrible marketers or really great marketers because they understand the plight of a salesperson. Sometimes it's because they just couldn't cut it in sales. But it would be super interesting to embrace this kind of like get rid of the stigma associated with moving departments internally mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, to exactly how you're talking about you want to, if you have somebody who's interested in different departments or different roles, embrace that, teach them, train them and move them. And I like how you're, uh, I'm going to say normalizing it. You know, it is, a, it's, you know, the, the average person stays at a company or a job two and a half years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, the older you get, the shorter it is usually, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in terms of roles within an organization, the average CMO stays for 18 months, which is like a drop in the hat. So it's just, um, it's just, I like, I like the approach there. So I think that intentional investment uh, in people is worth everyone's time. Like if, if you know what someone's really motivated by, you know what they're trying to do next, yeah. you give them opportunities to achieve it. Um, I think that's, uh, so I think leaning into that, the sticky note game is a way to really try to be intentional about that growth and build on like everything else we talked about, super important context building, uh, you know, focusing on belonging. All of those are cornerstones of any onboarding program when done well. But I feel like that additional focus on an expectation setting of what success means is, is the thing that most onboarding programs lack. Yeah. Uh, what most companies don't have insight into. They don't know what their people want to do next. So they don't know what to invest in. Um, I think making that very explicitly clear, um, it's like a good overall mantra of a company. Take things that are generally implicit, make them very explicit. And I think the sticky note game is like a really lightweight way of doing that. It's interesting when we started this podcast, you know, Varun and I had some ideas of what we'd end up talking about. We have a whole list of questions and, you know, where we, we thought these conversations were going to go. And we spend the majority of time talking about people. <laughs> and it's like this was case in point. I mean, we just everybody has a different perspective. Every like it's just so interesting to me. Um, I don't know, Varun, I don't know if that's what you expected to, but like. I think the number one thing that I've noticed from talking to agency owners is how much respect we have for finding good people and keeping good people. You know, that's what kind of drives our whole industry. Mm -hmm. 
True that, true that. And <laughs> and every every owner has a different approach, I think, um, in how they work. I mean, yes, we we thought about talking about, you know, discovery, design, deploy. I mean, I think those are more or less become more standard now, but I think it's the other thing when we hear from owners, like, you know, um, with Mark, we, we, we talked about how they, you know, approached EOS and how they implemented that within the company. I mean, I think that's a interesting and useful conversation for other owners to to take away from and see okay. how they can think about it so it's it's great to have that you know different or commiserate approach. a lot of times you know misery loves company it's nice to hear that you're not alone in the challenge that you're facing so but i think finding ways to influence your culture to do those kinds of things like for those that are looking at the video and wondering what this crazy background of mine is like that's another part of our company that we started making available to other companies um but you know how do you how do you recognizing that people are the most important thing? How do you like effectively shape your culture and invest in your culture to make sure that you're allowing people to be heard? I think yeah. those agencies that can really build an inclusive culture where everyone's voices matter uh, will outperform others. And as you say, like there's a concept of how do you do discovery and design and development? All of that's really important. I don't want to take away from that. Um, but those companies that really invest in culture to get the most from their people will generally do those other jobs better. Um, yeah. So I know, I'd be curious to see like how in your conversations, how you have seen creative tactics that people have taken to make their companies more inclusive and have voices being heard. Has that been a frequent topic of conversation? Uh, yeah, because especially since when everybody being home, it changes to your point, it changes culture so significantly. You know, we talking with to our advantage, a lot of agencies will build differently. So, you know, when I mean build, I mean how they build the company with people i you know the one of the fellows that we talked to he's fully remote entire company's been fully remote for years and so that was not a pivot for them when covid happened it just standard you know but yep. his his business and his hiring and how he brings people in are very different than the way that you've structured you know how people decide on hierarchy what the partnership relationships and ownership relationships look like it's it's um even just companies working with other companies and partnering with other companies or working with, you know, global vendors or outsourced situations, you know, it's, it's, it's just, they're just really interesting conversations to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> which is great, which makes interesting podcast, I think. <laughs> sure, sure. So I've been thinking about like how, how, especially when people are remote, how, when you can't read body language, like how do you get the most from conversations and make sure you can be hearing others? Um, uh, so that's been something that's been on my mind gosh, for like the last two years or so. I think we did a workshop in Germany where I was asking people about this and came up with this idea around these inclusion cards around how do you focus meetings to become more inclusive and hear from other people. Um, there are, so like there's a benefit, especially if you have junior people on your team mm -hmm. to giving them the explicit permission to play this role, right? To be like, I was going to ask if that's what it meant. Like, does this identify that you're the devil's advocate and all the conversations you're asking? For that meeting, you might say like, listen, I want you to play this role. So I mean, if you're a junior developer and I'm a CTO, you're probably going to smile and nod and be like, yep, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I might say like, listen, I want for today to you to challenge be like, hey, devil's advocate, maybe that's not the best approach. What if we did this other thing instead? And you're not trying to be the contrarian just because you're being an asshole. You're doing it because we've asked you to play the devil's advocate. And junior members sometimes need that encouragement to be able to play that card. The opposite is true. Think about the CTO who knows 
where all the bodies are buried, because she probably buried them herself. Like she knows where all the challenges are. She knows why other ideas might not work. And those people can be quick to shoot an idea down and be like, okay, we can't do that because why? And so one of the things you try to give them uh, is this kind of background and be like, all right, you're gonna be the angel's advocate. Every time says an idea, you have to lean into it and say why it might work before you shoot it down. You gotta yes end things and build on other people's ideas and not just automatically say no. Um, and if there's a person who's been around for a while, who maybe has a lot of privilege or just a lot of institutional knowledge, you might give them the explicit role of the toddler and say like, when something comes up, I want you to be like, you know what, I don't get it. Explain it to me like I'm five. Like, even if you do get it, other people might not get it. might be afraid of asking the really tough question. So like, just give it to me in smaller words. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I'm following you. Explain it to my grandma. That's yeah, exactly. joke we use. I don't really get it. Um, mm -hmm. You want to make sure that one person is making sure the meeting doesn't go upside down. So they're the one keeping track of the time and the agenda, making sure things are moving quickly. Um, like there are different ways you can think about how you structure a meeting to get the most from each other. Um, uh, or even if you're doing, if you're like a CEO and you're having a conversation to a large group of people, it's nice to allow them to visually cue you like, I want more, or I want less, because you can't read body language. So if you have like that big Brady Brunch, you know, screen of faces, you can pause, be like, all right, is everyone still there? And they can be like, yeah, tell me more. Like, I want to hear more about that. Or like, nope, zoom out. I get it. Like, I'm done. Next topic. Like, there's ways you can cue a speaker differently. Um, uh, and I think the hardest thing for uh, the agency owner or the leaders is to honestly not do what I'm doing right now is shut up and like get other voices to be heard and not be the first one to answer a question. Uh, and so I try to like that acronym wait, which stands for why am I talking? Like just to have this be the thing, like I might start a dialogue and say like, what do we, what should we be doing next year? We consider a new space and then just embrace the pause as opposed to saying like, oh, I'm gonna do this thing, what do you think? And then like takes all the oxygen out of the room. Uh, and so I think finding a way to lean into, even when you're remote, right? Even when you're distributed, leaning into building an inclusive culture where other people's voices are championed or given space is like the job of an agency owner. Um, yeah. And oftentimes they feel like their job is to be the visionary and the luminary that has all the answers, which is ridiculous. Like they should be asking good questions and getting as much insight as they can. Certainly. For those of you watching, you've seen Mark changing the cards behind him. For those of you listening, he's got a slew of these really cool Zoom backgrounds that keep changing with the references that he's mentioning. So that was that was that was fun. I was I was going to ask you what those were. I, I had a feeling I was going to take a guess, but yeah, it's, so. it's neat to think about how people can use that for the uh, for the folks that actually are interested in trying this. We try to figure out ways of making meetings better, which is where that meetings done right that co site came from. Uh, tips and you can actually get. We actually made a card like a physical card game you can bring and leave in oh, a conference room. Cute, I it love it. Cute. Well, thanks so much, Mark. This was a great, great call. You know, I want to, I just want to list off the places where people can find you. You said uh, meetingsdoneright.co. Mm -hmm. There's walkshop.io, which we didn't touch on, but I think everyone should check it out. It's a really cool uh, business opportunity. Stickynote.game. And then you have tablexi.com. Mm -hmm. And then you're on the Twitter, Mark Rickmeyer. And then LinkedIn as well. Did yeah. I miss anything in there? I think that's the short list, right? Yep. And OpsConf. Um, and they'll be um, listed. If you look at the podcast, they'll be all listed there. So for those in Chicago, I'm, uh, we do work with, uh, with Forbes often in Chicago, kind of running the business community. But for, uh, for those out in the interwebs, yeah, I think that's the best <laughs> place is to uh, check me out uh, or look at either TableXI or uh, like places like Walkshop. Great. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, that's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, tell someone about this podcast. Thanks, Varun. Yeah, I need a catchphrase at the end. We've been working on that. So, all right, everyone. <laughs> we'll see you next time. See you next time. Yeah, good one. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus, we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.